Welcome to Globally Speaking, sponsored by Moravia and Nimsy Insights. Are you ready to dive into the most critical issues impacting language localization today? Globally Speaking is an independent program designed to educate, inform, and challenge everyone who's engaged in global communications. Your hosts for Globally Speaking are Renato Beninato and Michael Stevens. Learn more by visiting our website at www.globallyspeakingradio.com. And now, here are Renato and Michael. I'm Michael Stevens. I'm Renato Beninato. And today on Globally Speaking, Renato, we're talking about, is it fair to have a favorite country or a list of favorite countries? Yes. Okay. At least maybe a favorite country I've visited. That at least puts some okay. context. Okay. Yeah. You into haven't it. been to Brazil. I haven't yet. been to Brazil yet. Okay, so, okay. though Brazil is just one of my favorite countries in general, in theory. But we're talking not about Brazil today, except for that. We're talking about Japan. Japan. Uh, well, uh, let me tell you a little connection that there is between Brazil and Japan. Very few people know that the largest Japanese population outside of Japan lives in Brazil. Brazil. Yeah, they actually migrated to Brazil in the 1800s. And if you like Brazil nuts, which come from the Amazon, they were grown, they are grown still today by the Japanese colonies that live there in the Amazon. Wow, I had no idea. But before we move forward, I know we have a good following in Japan. I must say I'm sorry and say Nihongo ga wakarimasem. Which is a really important phrase in it's Japanese. It's the only phrase that I need in Japan, which means I don't speak Japanese. It's <laughs> perfect. That's <laughs> okay. absolutely perfect. It has helped me a lot while I'm there. Not that people look at me and think that I speak <laughs> Japanese, right? I, I don't have the, the physique du rôle, right, as they say. Well, related to the language, one of the stories I have is with my children, when they decide on what language they're going to study initially, I promise to take them on a trip to that country before they turn 16. With the assumption, or a place where they speak the language, it's not always that. With the assumption, I've got little girls and they're probably going to learn French and we're going to go to Montreal, right? Like cheap flight, <laughs> very, very easy. Well, my oldest daughter proved me wrong when she came home and she said, Dad, I chose the language I'm going to study today. I said, what's that? And she said, Japanese. I thought, wow, this is going to be a lot more complicated to get to Japan. And we did. And that was a great story in and of itself. But I don't think our podcast is about that. Exactly. Even though she has participated in our podcast. She's been on our podcast and we hung out exactly. on that trip. You and Japan. I and, and her were, yeah. were together in Japan and we went to a Brazilian steakhouse there. So <laughs> everything comes together. Ties together. <laughs> well, today we have two experts with us on Japan and the business climate there, but also an expert in localization and translation. These guests have their perspectives. They are in Japan and they share with us what is essential in the Japanese market. One of the things that we need to keep in mind is that Japan, and I'm going to go back in history here again. When I first started doing research in the localization space, we did a survey with 75 companies about every aspect of uh, localization. And one of the questions in our questionnaire was, what is the most difficult market for you? What is the toughest market? And the standard answer was Japan. Mm -hmm. And occasionally we will have a person that would say, Canada. Say, Canada? <laughs> really? And, and, and the me. guy said, well, I'm only responsible for the Americas. Okay? They didn't okay. have Japan in their portfolio. Yeah. But the key thing is that Japan is the third largest economy in the world. The amount of brands 
that we consume from Japan is amazing, but they also consume all kinds of products from all over the world. Mm -hmm. So Japan is a challenge in both senses, in the sense that their products need to be localized into other languages. I mean, if you look, you're probably being today in a Honda or a Toyota car, you have an electronic, a Panasonic, Sony, or, or, or something like that. Your TV is probably from a Japanese brand. You like sushi, or if you don't like sushi, you like tempura. <laughs> There's something of Japan that permeates our lives every day. Mm -hmm. And the challenge to get into that market is the fact that it's an island, an archipelago, where it's a monocultural space. Yeah. So it's very different than going into Europe, yeah. where you have 20 plus language, but there is a certain common identity. And a level of connectionalism that exists there, whereas Japan is figuratively and literally an island. It's so isolated. our guests will give their perspective, and I think you'll have fun and, 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 and you'll appreciate what they have to share with us. So let's start. So Tim Romero, he yeah. hosts the podcast Disrupting Japan. He's going to give us a perspective of the business community and what's happening there. And then we're going to talk to Oya Kok. She runs a company in Japan called Oira, which is an online platform for interpreters, and you can use your mobile to access them on demand. And she's an interesting story because she's Turkish, but she has a startup in Japan. Mm -hmm. So each one of these guests brings their own perspective and view, and I think there's a lot to learn from that. So let's let Tim start. Well, I'm Tim Romero. I host the Disrupting Japan podcast, where we interview Japanese startups and entrepreneurs and talk about innovation in Japan and what it's like to run a company there. I've started four companies in Japan myself. I've sold two, bankrupted two. That's 50-50, so not too bad as far as startups go. And thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, that'd be a great baseball batting average. So I'd say you're doing pretty <laughs> good. You're doing pretty good. So Tim, I'm going to take a stab here. We're not sitting face to face, but you do not sound Japanese. Yeah, amazingly enough, I'm not. I've been in Japan, wow, close to 25 years now. Believe it or not, I, I first came to Japan as a professional musician years and years ago. My music career, let's just say it was short, <laughs> even by Japanese standards. And that was in the late 90s. And I thought this internet thing sounded interesting. So I quit my job and started a company and ended up selling it. And then, you know how it goes, rinse, wash, repeat. And I kept doing that. That's fascinating. And why Japan? Well, it's a wonderful country. Once you get over the sort of the alienness of it all, you know, the first year or so here, everything is new and strange and wonderful. But after that passes, it's a very comfortable place to live. And it's a very different market in which to build businesses. So we talk in this podcast about cultural differences, language, localization, different models. What is different for, because let's frame this in a, in a better way. Japanese companies are global companies today, uh, as are many American companies and European companies. Today, you can drive a Japanese car, you can have a Japanese computer, you have these global Japanese brands. How are they different when they look at the world from the Western brands that look at Asia? Is that something that you have, is there any angle there that you have noticed uh, a major difference? 
Sure, there's quite a few. Do you want to look at this from, for example, the angle of sort of design and localization or from the angle of business strategy? Uh, let's start with design and then we can talk about business strategy because that's uh, because the two of them go together. I'd say the biggest thing is, I mean, all of your listeners understand the importance of localization, but I'd say the biggest thing is this sensitivity to cultural differences. So, for example, Japanese tend to... I'll give you a specific example. I used to run a company called Engine Yard, which was a platform as a service company. It was a San Francisco startup, and I ran their Japan market entry. And we found quite accidentally, we had this sign-up wizard where it would walk you through every step of the sign-up. And it was about six pages long. That was everyone around the world really liked. But we also had this kind of diagnostic tool, which was a single page with probably 60 different fields you had to input. It looked horrible. And we found that the Japanese actually preferred the single page to the well-designed hand-holding wizard. I think it was just a sense that the, the Japanese like to know what they're getting into before they commit to a process. Yeah, that step of being walked through one action at a time was not right. Right, one. they just kind of okay, like where are we going to end up here? And then great, let's let's do it. So we cleaned that particular page up and made it presentable. It was a huge difference. But quite honestly, most of the marketing mistakes, most of the mistakes I see companies make during localization are are the really simple ones. Things like I don't know how many times I'm still seeing you know that that standard stop sign icon. Mm-hmm. used to mean stop. Stop signs don't look like that in Asia. So it's it's just like a confusing icon. So there's a, there's a lot of things. I mean, I find in general, these days, most companies do it well. But US and Japanese companies are on the opposite extremes. US firms tend to assume that they need almost no localization to the point where they'll launch in English when coming into Japan. And Japanese firms tend to assume that they need to change everything about their product when going to market. Hmm. where usually the truth is somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's changing. In fact, there'll be an episode of Disrupting Japan where I sat down with the CEO of design firm Goodpatch, and he works specifically with helping companies come into and go out of Japan. And his point is that he, he was saying because of the iPhone and Android interfaces, design really is becoming more global. That, that That's kind of pushed the whole not necessarily localization industry, but it's pushed the whole design industry towards a certain standard. And because of that, localization and global markets are becoming easier to access. Well, that's a very good point because in the early days, Japan was very advanced with their Docomo phones with features and, and they had emojis and they had all these things that we incorporated in the Western design. But uh, it's now, it's all the same, right? It's the same iOS there might be a little bit, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with Line, but it's the WeChat of, of Japan. The or originators the, of this sticker. Yes. For social media or social. But it's different. The, the way they communicate is different. It's busier. But a lot of Snapchat features look a lot like things that you have on online. So there is this, this cross-pollination, it, it appears. I think absolutely so. Mm-hmm. So in terms of uh, strategy, what do you think is different from the Japanese startup and your traditional American startup? American startups don't necessarily think of global markets uh, very early on in their design. Is there a difference in that sense? 
I think so. When you're looking in terms of, of the startups themselves, how much local startups think of global markets, I think directly depends on the size of the economy they're operating in. So the U.S. has a huge economy and access to funding and very few startups think about globally other than a, yes, we want to do that someday. If you look at startup countries like Israel or Singapore, there's a tremendous number of startups that come out of these countries, despite the fact they have very small economies, but almost every single one of them is globally focused because they know they don't have enough. There's not a big enough domestic market to, to grow in. Japan is kind of an unhappy medium there. The economy is big enough that startups can focus on Japan, but I'd say over the last oh five years or so, there's been a real growing sense that you need to be thinking about the global markets. And VCs today are reluctant to invest in companies that are only focused on the domestic market. So I think that's, that's changing here, and that's, that's good. As Tim mentioned, there is a lot of change in business culture in Japan, as it is through the rest of the world. Right now, there's a lot of discussion about the changing dynamic between men and women in the workplace. And our next guest, Oya Koch, has been able to build a successful company in Japan as a startup. She's a woman who's running it, and she has Turkish heritage. Well, I think that in Japanese, the word is gaijin, yes. which is the foreigner. And we know that Japan has this tradition or perception of being a male-dominated business environment. So let's hear how she did. I was used to being in a male, not dominant, but yeah, male dominant, perhaps industry, studying with many men, students already at school and everything. So I was personally actually very used to this, uh, being surrounded with men and working with them. So I think that made my life easier, but definitely the challenges of being a woman entrepreneur in tech has more challenges in Japan. However, as you just mentioned, being a gaijin makes a little bit of a difference here because if I were Japanese, perhaps the barriers would be higher, perhaps, because that person is actually you know, one of them, right? But being a gaijin, being a foreigner already makes them think that you are not one of those people in a way. And I think how you put yourself, how you communicate with people, how professional you are. And once you kind of give that feeling to the people, to the investors, to your colleagues and everyone, I think those barriers, I can challenge those barriers as well. So initially, of course, you've experienced and faced that reaction or perhaps challenge. However, once you start communicating with people and once you help them understand you as well and what you are doing, it makes a difference. You do whatever you want to do. And at the end, you achieve because you give results and you are very capable in executing your plan, doing what you want, you have a vision and everything, then the picture is so different Then these people really respect you and they want to work with you. So I would just recommend all women in a male-dominant country and especially in male-dominant industries just to be a little less sensitive about this topic, just to overcome it. 
and just do whatever you want to do. And once you prove by doing, then the barriers are gone. So Tim, what do you think is important that our listeners are understanding about the startup community in Japan and and sort of your work there? I think one of the most interesting things about it, I think that when people talk about startups or the startup community, or, or let's just talk about innovation in general, almost everyone looks towards Silicon Valley, that venture model, and they compare what's going on in Silicon Valley to what's going on wherever they happen to be and say, what's different? What do we need to change? But I think one of the most interesting aspects of Japan is I think there's a different model starting to develop here. I mean, there is a, a pretty healthy startup scene, but there's also a tremendous number of mid-sized companies that are like 100 people who've been part of someone's supply chain who are now changing and trying to become product companies. And until the last 10 years, all of those companies were pretty much focused on just being a supplier. And this is a chance for this tremendous amount of innovation to be just brought onto the market from experienced technology companies trying to productize rather than small companies starting from scratch. And I think that's that's unique to Japan and it's very interesting watching it develop. Yeah, I was just listening to Goldman Sachs podcast recently and they were talking about the success Germany has had. And really they have so few large international companies, but they have mid-sized companies that provide very high quality goods for other areas. And Japan has that same type of opportunity. It is actually quite similar. Yeah. It's, it's quite similar. Japan's situation is a little more extreme because in the 50s and 60s, well, actually really up until the 90s, supply chain companies were only expected to supply one corporate group. You basically had one customer. It was That's just the way things worked. So there are now 165,000 mid-sized manufacturers in Japan, and a lot of them are having to learn to sell and market for the first time. But it's good for the economy because it's forcing this huge section of the economy that represents half of all corporate revenues and more employs more than half of the Japanese workforce to suddenly start to innovate. One of the things that we have outside of Japan is this concept of multiculturalism. Japan is a fairly monocultural society, right? You don't have much diversity. It's a single language country, very low rates of immigration. Is that something that is changing at all or is still something where it's Japanese or die? It's very hard. There's a very, very small subset of businesses where you can get by selling in English. So when, when I look around Asia, I, I kind of break the, the countries into, or actually, you know, globally, you can look at, okay, which countries are English native, which are English friendly, and which are English hostile. So English friendly countries might be like India, Singapore, the Philippines, maybe Hong Kong. English is not really the native language, but you can do business in English. It's, it's acceptable. English hostile companies are like Japan and Korea. And it doesn't mean they dislike English or anything like that, but it means that if you want to do meaningful business here, you've got to be doing it in Japanese. If your user base is very small and there's no meaningful competition, you might be able to get by with English, but in general, you won't be able to scale your business much here unless you're doing business in Japanese. 
This podcast was produced by Burns360. You can subscribe to Globally Speaking on iTunes or any number of podcast portals. You should check out our other episodes on globallyspeakingradio.com where you can find transcripts and old notes for every show. You can also listen to us on your smart speaker. Thank you for listening to Globally Speaking, sponsored by Moravia and Nimzi Insights. We'd like to hear your comments, suggestions and feedback. So until next time, please visit online at www.globallyspeakingradio.com.